doing, folks? My guest today is going to be Crystal Phillips. Crystal is a former national-level speed skater for Team Canada and also a multiple sclerosis patient advocate. In this episode, we go through and discuss Crystal's journey into athletics and how she's had to come back and deal with her disease. We also touch on life after athletics and how she started the Branch Out Neurological Foundation, a foundation which helps in accelerating tech solutions and non-pharmaceutical approaches to neurological disorders like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism, MS, depression, and multiple others. I hope you folks enjoy Crystal's journey of failures and successes so far. And on Crystal's behalf, In the Arena is donating $250 to the foundation she helped start, the Branch Out Foundation. Thanks, guys. Enjoy. And we are rolling. Crystal, thank you so much. This is one I've really been uh, been looking forward to. I'm finally glad we were able to, to nail it down and, and get everything rolling. Great to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out. I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing I was kind of just curious about uh, first and foremost, because earlier in the year we had some ski competitions and stuff like that. I'm just curious, how has everything been with uh, with COVID? It's kind of just a little little bit different direction because I feel like you guys have been taking it so much more seriously up there. And not that we haven't been taking it seriously, but there are certain areas of the country and stuff where, uh, and we're, you know, with vaccines and everything coming out now, I mean, I feel like the end is near, at least for us, and everyone's getting trying to like hope, fingers crossed, that we're getting back to <laughs> normal here soon. So I'm just curious, how has it been up there? Because I've heard different different stories, and I know they've canceled a lot of sporting events and and things like that, and it's been a much much different world up there. So I'm just kind of curious how much it's it's affected you. Yeah, you know, and I don't know how much different it is. Like I think everyone's starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and. The, the weather, I'm in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and so the weather is really um, good here this week, and so it almost feels like spring. The patios are open, and like the rules have changed where they've opened up whole streets so that they're more um, conducive to walking and biking and stuff. So I think everyone's just used to adapting, and like everyone's, as much as we're tired of the word pivot, everyone knows what that means, and everyone's just willing to do what it takes to you know, make ends meet, but then also um, enjoy the things that we can enjoy and focus on what we can. Yeah, it's good. It's good to hear. It's starting to starting to change a little bit up there. And, and Calgary is is an awesome place. I've uh, been up there several times to compete and everything else. And are you so are you originally from Calgary? Is that kind of where you where you grew up? No, I'm originally from the country outside of Beaumont, um, okay. which is a small town just south of Edmonton. Okay. Um, and then I moved to Edmonton to live with my coach and her family to uh, be part of a sports school for my last year in high school. And then as soon as I graduated, like the second, I was off to Calgary, which is where the National Training Center is and the fastest ice in the world. So I moved to Calgary in 2003. And it's the, it's the mountains that have kept me here post-retirement from sport. Yeah, it's, it's so awesome. there. What is it, sunshine that's like just north? I mean, you can kind of see all those uh, gorgeous mountains off in the distance. It was always interesting because we would go up there and compete. And it was so cool because you'd be like in downtown Calgary, the Canadian Olympic Park there that they have. It's right outside the city. You get to see all these really cool buildings. And you're like two minutes from downtown. It's crazy how they had that whole area set up. And it's super, super cool. Yeah, it's really neat to think that it was two days ago, like 
48 hours ago and I was like on the top of a beautiful mountain overlooking, you know, all these mountain peaks and that was just like a one day trip. It's pretty, it's a pretty big advantage for living in Calgary. Yeah, no, it's, that's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about your career, kind of getting into speed skating and kind of your, your journey so far. I got into it because I was originally a figure skater with my two sisters and I was also a huge tomboy. So when it came to that point where I had to put um, hair, makeup and put a dress on, it was like a battle every time. And so, <laughs> and screen excitedly when I saw speed skating at the Olympics um, my parents um, quickly pivoted <laughs> and um, signed me up for for the sport of speed skating and were willing to drive me into the city one hour each way um, because literally the first day I tried it I totally fell in love and it just so happened that I had really big leg muscles which is much better for speed skating than it is for figure skating anyways <laughs> now what was it about the the speed skating that kind of drew you compared to the the figure skating i just liked how powerful and strong and fast it was like i always tried to go really fast figure skating which is why i wasn't a very pretty skater or technical and i didn't want to spend the time you know doing figure eights i always wanted to go off track and do it as fast as i could not as, as well as i could so um, I think that's what really drew me. And then there was a small community and, and I liked the people immediately. So as a people person, it, I was hooked. Yeah. It's one of those things kind of about those small, like niche sports, like, you know, the, the speed skating and kind of even figure skating for that matter. But I mean, the same thing with skiing. I mean, it's a very tight knit community and it kind of, it's a, it's an interesting community. I feel like, especially when you're young, because you're like passionate and in love with it and you're still trying to like find your way but then there's also like the competitive aspect and it you know be, and for us it, you know it's it's different be, a little bit different because the fact that you're just going up against the course you're not going up against like other people which i kind of you know at least for me i would like that aspect of you're always like kind of racing and you always kind of know where you stand you're not getting judged which compared to figure skating, i mean that that part is like definitely appealing where it's just like okay just fastest one to the line and you just got to beat everybody else. And it's very simple, very straightforward. Yeah, no, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah no, so. I agree. And, and figure skating, I, I was never at a level where I was being in competition, um, but I watched my, my course, I'm totally biased, but I'm like, what? Like they should have gotten a higher score. And I never <laughs> understood that system. It was frustrating. And at least I had a time to tell me. So. How long were you there? So it was around 2003. I mean, when did you make that decision that you wanted to go full time? And this was something they were super passionate about and kind of want to wanted to pursue. I mean, was it as simple as falling in love with it at nine years old? Because it's always one of those interesting things I'm curious about with different guests and stuff that I've had on of when that kind of light bulb goes off, you know, like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I think having success early on was probably had a lot to do with it. So I like I said, these like big, large 
leg muscles like that my nickname was quadzilla or thunder thighs and so that was a serious genetic advantage in the sport of speed skating and it really propelled me forward in the sport at a young age and so i was winning you know provincial championships and then national championships then north american championships so like to me it wasn't even a decision it was just like an obvious next step for me once i graduated from high school and i was just like itching to get to calgary which meant the next step towards my dreams of going to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's so cool to be able to have those advantages and those successes at a young age, because they really kind of keep you going and kind of keep propelling you towards uh, those, those new heights that you can kind of reach in your career. Let's, let's go in and talk about though, some of the, the setbacks along the way that you have, you've had to endure and kind of had to, had to deal with. Yeah. So once I moved to Calgary in 2003, I was nominated as a hopeful for the 2010 Olympics, um, training with the top, some of the fastest skaters in the world. Um, I was in my total heaven and it was only about a year after I had moved there and was training towards that Olympic dream. And in a matter of three days, I went from literally one of the top skaters in Canada to not walking. I lost feeling from my chest to my toes. I lost bladder control and developed double vision. And so um, that was a pretty dramatic onset of what I was then diagnosed with, which was multiple sclerosis, which is a degenerative neurological condition with no cure. And I half jokingly now say that they told me you have this degenerative neurological disease called multiple sclerosis, but then they told me the worst thing I had ever heard, which was you will probably never speed skate again. And so for to all the athletes listening to this, um, when you work your everyday um, towards this goal in, in sports, like you eat, sleep, dream, only sports. So for them to just tell me literally three days later after being on top of the world or feeling like it, that I'm never gonna speed skate again, um, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't in a car accident or anything. It was so confusing that, um, uh, really just kind of like blocked that out of my brain and was like, no, that is not a part of my reality. I don't understand what you're saying. So I genuinely didn't believe them and use that naivete, naivete to, to get back into sport and, and utilize the, the resources I had with the national team, which was access to some of the top chiros and physios and sports psychologists to help me get back to not only walking again, but then biking, and then eventually race my first speed skating race about four months after I was able to walk. Um, so that was um, a bit of a, an annoying setback and pretty aggressive onset of a very serious disease. An annoying setback. That is certainly one <laughs> one way to, to, I mean, yeah, no, that's absolutely uh, incredible. I mean, what would, so take me through some of those feel, I mean, obviously you, you say you're trying to block it out, but I mean, what is that feeling like when you lose all feeling and you're kind of like, you know, what's your initial thought on this? I mean, are you like, okay, some, something's clearly a little bit wrong here because I mean, clearly you are in peak physical condition as you're trying to, you know, chase down Olympics and, and everything else. So I'm just curious. I mean, it's got to be like totally stunning. Like, okay. Cause you know, like the nicks and bruises of like, oh yeah, I think I kind of fucked my back up a little bit, or this is a little off. This is a little not where it's supposed to be. And then there's the complete opposite, which I, I mean, I just have no words to, that's insane. 
Well, and you nailed it. Like as athletes, you're so in tune with your body. And when it, when I first uh, realized there was something off, um, it was just really hard to, to walk. And so I was going to the washroom is the middle of the night and my, mu my muscles felt stiff and sore and just slow, like it was hard, but I was half asleep. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking like, wow, I must've really beasted myself in the weight room, you know, a couple days ago. And this is the Dom's effect or the delayed onset of muscle stiffness. Mm -hmm. And so I was like kind of proud of myself, but then, you know, I, I went to the washroom and I, I touched my legs and I was like, wait a sec, like, this is not Dom's. <laughs> this is like, I can't feel my legs. So I, I screamed at my roommate and I was like, something's wrong, like get me to the hospital. And so she, she, she got me there. And, and that's honestly, it's such a whirlwind because you're so confused. You don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. You don't really have time to think. Right. Um, so you're just trying to, you're in flight or fight mode. And so you're not really strategizing or, sure. you know, watching your emotions or anything. It's just all a pretty big blur. Yeah. So how soon after you went, did you, I mean, how long did it take to, to figure out what the diagnosis was and all that? I mean, was that a quick process or did that take some time for them to go through and figure out? I mean, are you left for four or five days just laying there like, Hey doc, what the hell is wrong? <laughs> like, what's, what's the deal here? I should be getting out of here pretty soon. Like how, what, what was that process like? Yeah. Well, you know, it was just like, it's like when you go on a race and you're like, okay, like I just have to focus on the next stride and like bend your knees and like you're really focused because time is really intense. And so there were so many things as next steps through like all the testing and stuff that I had to do that I was really focused on, okay, what's the next step? And so I was in the hospital for three days or four days and did a, a, a series of tests. I remember really fearing that I had to do a spinal tap because I hate needles and I heard those really hurt. And then right before I was literally in the wheelchair getting wheeled to go get a spinal tap. And then I got my MRI results back. And that's when the doctors were like, Hey, you have, it looked like you have MS, but usually it takes two back, back in the day, it would take two relapses before you got an official diagnosis. So they said, we think this could be it. Um, but there's been cases where you only have one attack and that's called something else called transverse myelitis. So okay. I didn't really know I had MS. I just thought, you know, there's a, a strong possibility. And they did predict that it would be tough and maybe um, not possible for me to skate again. So they give you that and and that's when you're like, okay, I am blocking out that information you just gave me. That does not exist. I am getting back to skating and I am getting back to, um, you know, being a, a top level athlete. So, I mean, what is that process like once you get the final diagnosis that you have and what are the steps going forward? Like, what is that whole process like and how, how do you com combat it? Yeah, it, it was, I mean, I'm making it sound really simple by saying like, oh, I just didn't think about it. It's like, obviously I went through all of the like, right. very normal teenage um, um, emotions of like, fear and disappointment and sadness and it just so happened at the same time my boyfriend at the time and think of like a teenager was now getting with my 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 girlfriend um in sport <laughs> and so it was like what like what is life um so it was like a very weird you know hormones mixed with weird nervous system mm -hmm. disaster um so it's almost like the two kind of canceled each other out in a sense. Cause you're like, I don't even know how to cope with all of these emotions. 
And so it was nice to be able to focus on the, my one goal, which was, I want to skate again, no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then it was again, just taking it step by step. And, you know, my move, my mom moved in with, with me and my roommates, um, for a short period of time, just to help me, you know, feed, you know, make sure I was fed and, and could get up the stairs and all that right. kind of stuff too. So it was like a very, um, there were a lot of steps to think about. Now, how, so what was the age? How old were you? I was 18. 18. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I look back to when I was 18 and have all those things kind of happening at, at once, you know, it's, it's always funny to to look back on some of those moments and yours is way worse than anything I ever <laughs> dealt with. But it is the funny like high school, like, oh my God, you know, when it rains, it pours and you have all these things and, and the perspective on life is is so much different for sure. But I mean, to be able to have the mom, your mom there to come in and kind of help you. And, and so as you kind of geared towards getting back to competitive skating and everything else, did you try and like absorb as much information as possible on MS in different ways? Did you just become like a sponge and like, okay, what is this going to be? And what, like, you know, how, what was that process? Like, I'm just curious. Um, yeah, it's a good question. So I learned the valuable lesson of when you have, when you get diagnosed with something, you are never allowed to Google that something after 10 p.m. at night by yourself. <laughs> um, that's a real downward spiral. So I did a little bit of that, but honestly, it made me feel so bad and scared about the future because, I mean, there's some pretty ugly pictures of the future for a lot of people with MS, unfortunately. So of course you, you get focused on some of the worst stories and start imagining your own life in the, those situations. So I had to like consciously cut myself off and stop Googling it and just mm -hmm. focus on, okay, what do I want and what can I do to get myself there? So I was, I just poured my, my, all my energy into, bless you. That was my dog. <laughs> Um, I just poured all my energy into getting back into sport. Mm -hmm. So when that ended, like, how did you build out that plan? Is that with coaches? Is that with your parents? Is that with doctors as well? Like, okay, these are the, the steps I need to make. And what was like the, the view of kind of that plan as you built it? Is it like the baby steps towards getting the ultimate goal of, of getting you, getting you back competing at, at a high level? What, what was that like? Yeah. So my parents were, were really great because they, you know, gave me though that that good advice of like focus on what you can do, not what you can't do, and just keep on going forward. And if you ever want to complain, you know, don't complain to the world, but you're more than welcome to complain to us anytime you need you need to talk or vent or whatever. And so um took that attitude, but then I also, like you said, like this, the sporting community is quite small, and so me being affected at this, this um, to this degree was affected the whole community, and, and everybody swarmed around me and helped me and uh, wanted to support me, so I utilized all of that. Um, I got really good at asking for help, and and then of course I had the, the bless, blessing of, of being being um, so close to the, some of the top chiros and physios and sports psychs and coaches and, and teammates. So, um, I was in a good position to be able to get back. Mm -hmm. And so how long, what was that process like to, to getting back? I mean, like how long was the, the time frame of you getting back to just skating again, let alone competing? I mean, how, how long did that kind of take? 
Yeah, if if my memory is right, it took me a, a couple of months before I started feeling um, um, like feeling back in my legs and could start moving them and, okay. and my vision started to normalize. And so that's when I started to walk a bit and bike a bit. And then, and then I got back um, skating probably about three months after. Um, and about four months after I could walk, I raced my first competition. And I remember that, you know, the crowds were cheering. They're so excited to me, see me skating. And I cried myself asleep that night because my times were so sticky compared to before um, I was sick. And I just realized like, I've got a long road ahead of me. And I woke up that next morning and it's as if a line was drawn down the middle of my body and the entire left side of my body went numb overnight. So I went back into a pretty aggressive uh, relapse. I couldn't taste food on the left side of my mouth. I couldn't, I looked like I had Bell's palsy. Um, I couldn't use my left arm or left leg. And I think that was really the moment where I'm like, okay, I'm not this invincible teenager. I really do have this disease and I need to do absolutely everything I can to get back into sport. So that's when I started to um, go into drugs um, and took a daily drug injection. And I, I did that for five years as recommended by my neurologist and um, started to be a little bit more aggressive with um, different types of healing um, options beyond just the conventional system, mm -hmm. looking at the unconventional um, areas that are very normal for uh, an elite athlete. So mm -hmm. things like nutrition and um, modifying your exercises and physio and um, psychology and, and like mental training and that kind of stuff. I took that very, very seriously and developed like a personal plan that combined both conventional healthcare systems and the sporting world to figure out a better, a better journey forward so that I could still get back into sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's, that's unbelievable to, you know, you have such uh, once again, an amazing high, you're back, you're, you're, you know, going through the emotions, cry yourself to sleep and then boom, next thing, reality check tech comes in and, and sets you back. Right. I mean, it's like, I mean, that is brutal, but I mean, I feel like, it almost gives you a little bit of that aha light bulb moment to almost kick it into high gear of, okay, I really need to attack this thing head on and find the different avenues, whether conventional or unconventional and really kind of use all of my resources to get me back to, to somewhat normal, you know? Yeah. And you know, I, you said attack. And so I would say that when I first got back into sport, that was exactly my attitude. I had a lot of fear, frustration, anger, um, because of not only um, my health state, but also because of my personal situation of, you know, going through a breakup and kind of getting shunned by a friend, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I used a lot of negative energy to get back into support. So I, in hindsight, I'm almost not that surprised that I went back into relapse, like almost immediately once I started skating. Mm -hmm. Um, so after that, I, I really had to take a mental shift and kudos to my coach at the time. He told me this really valuable lesson. He said, I kept trying to adopt the attitude of more is more. So it's like, okay, I need to do more nutrition studying and I need to um, do more core workouts and do extra running and extra skating and extra biking and more is more. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying so hard, but then it was like I was a skipping CD and every time I tried, I would like take, um, I would get symptomatic and have to take a step back. Mm -hmm. And then I remember just feeling hopeless with my coach and he was like, Crystal, 
you play the piano, right? And, and I was like, yeah. And he always goes off on these crazy stories. And I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about this time, Arno? And, and he's like, well, what happens if you were to play all the notes at the same time? And I was like, I don't know, noise? And he's like, yeah, exactly. And I was like, okay. And he's like, so what is what makes the melody with those notes? And I was like, I, I don't know, Arno, what? And he's like, it's the space between the notes that makes the melody. And it's going to be the space between all of these things you're doing for sport that is going to make your performance in sport. So he really gave me this like green light light and took the weight of the world off my shoulders. And he's just like, calm down, slow down. What's in between your training program or programs are just as important as what you're doing in your programs. Like take some time, like go to the mountains, you know, feed off the beautiful nature that you're surrounded with. Take your dog for a walk, like those types of things. Hang out with your friends and chill out. And um, that was probably some of the best advice to this day, even in my, my um, career in, in business is still some of the best advice that I, I carry, carry with me. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think it's even more pertinent today with, you know, everyone having their phone right next to them and always being connected and kind of always we have information so much quicker and you're able to go through and it is more of a now, now, now everything done immediately. And it is just that kind of noise, right, where you don't really get a second to look at the beautiful mountains in Calgary or sunshine and just enjoy the day with your dog and just kind of take in all of life's uh, blessings that you kind of get get taken for granted or get washed out when you're when you're staring at your phone or, or your computer all day. So I think your coach there definitely has some has some good words. Now, kind of speaking to that, who are some other people that have really kind of helped you along this journey? Whether you know uh, post athletics and where you are now in business and your foundation and everything else, or, or who who has really kind of helped you along the way. Yeah, you know what, I wish I, I, I got to listen to all of your podcasts and I can't wait to, but I want to know everybody's answer because I'm sure it's similar. It's like there's so many people in different areas and, you know, I'm really good at collecting mentors and there are so many generous people out there who are willing to, to mentor me. But the, the highlights, I mean, I mentioned my parents and the, mm -hmm. the, their attitude and advice to me all along was has been really helpful. And I mean, my husband, we've been together for a really long time and he's been through a lot of the ups and the downs. And so was, you know, my roommate who drove me to the hospital. We went through all of those roller coasters together. So I never mm -hmm. felt really alone. And yeah. the other thing that I loved about, you know, my parents, my roommate at the time and my now husband, it's like, we didn't focus on the sadness of it all we didn't focus on the fear we focused on kind of progress and forward thinking and it's like let's not just feel sorry for ourselves and like you know they didn't cater you know everything to me when i was in relapse it was kind of like you good do you need any help okay what's the way forward how can i help you get there and mm -hmm. i'm always here for you kind of thing so i i i'm really thankful for for all of that yeah i mean i, f I feel like it you know from, from what you're saying, it really speaks to the, the attitude. And one of those things that I've talked about a lot and other guests have brought up is just how, you know, attitude is really everything, you know, attitude uh, sets the tone and, and how you're at it. You know, if the attitude of every right, your support group around you and everyone around you is poor me, woe is me, everything else. Like I really do believe that that affects 
how you're going to act and how, you know, where they're just like, Hey, you okay. All right. Let's get the next step forward. And like attitude, we're all good. We're moving forward. Like I really do think that that, uh, that really can make a huge difference in not only in, in, in life and sport and, uh, happiness and everything else. I mean, your attitude towards things, uh, it could be as simple as, you're going to the grocery store and oh, some son of a bitch screwed me out of that parking spot or whatever. Like, it's crazy how, you know, people get road rage driving and it is those little attitude shifts and everything else. And it really sounds like for you, you had this great support system that kind of kept you in a positive state of mind and a positive attitude and kind of really kept you uh, looking at the bright things. Yeah, exactly. And, it, you know, it's not to say that, like, I don't have sad days, dark days, all those things, and that the people around me don't acknowledge that stuff. It's just that we don't dwell on it. Mm -hmm. It's that we also look at, okay, this is all true, like, here to support you. And, like, I will acknowledge, you know, the pain and suffering. But then, you know, it's, it's, I just don't let myself kind of wallow in that, that sorrow. Yeah. And you can hear that language in your own head. Like you can change the narrative in your brain. And so it's really about recognizing it, accepting it, not judging it, labeling it, and then starting to um, filter in some new words and some new language and a whole new narrative that is a little bit more uplifting, positive, and motivating for, you know, taking the next step forward and getting out of bed and overcoming some of the, the tough parts. Yeah. So, so for you with that, I mean, because that can take, that can definitely take some time to, to be able to reconnect those neurons and, and create those new pathways for you to, to create something uh, positive and everything else. So for you, what were some of those, like, did you see a sports psych about it or not, maybe not just a sports psych, but a, a performance a psychologist in general? And what were some of kind of those unconventional ways with the conventional ways that you looked into and like, Hey, I'll try that. I'll give that a go, whether it's a little bit off the beaten path and some people might think I'm a little bit crazy, but you know, might as well give it a shot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of all of the above. Like I, I very intentionally put my rose colored glasses on um, to help filter out all of the noise and negativity and the, and the bad narrative. Um, but in order to do that, I see it no different than training a muscle and you can't, you know, learn uh, a new lift in the weight room and then all of a sudden be strong forever. Mm -hmm. Like you have to consistently go back to the weight room, um, you know, with that space between to recover the muscle and, and then eventually you get stronger and stronger over time. It's a consistent practice. Like every day I'm listening to my narrative. I'm, I'm very conscious of it and I and I try to um, pay in a way that you know I'm, I'm, I'm very intentionally putting rose-colored glasses on to see you know what I can do what I can eat what I can focus on as opposed to uh, the alternative of what I can't or you know start comparing yourself to others and all of those other negative things mm -hmm. now how much have you noticed like how much does food has that like affected you in making some of those choices because I mean there's definitely I mean, I know I feel it when I'm eating like pastas and things like that. Like you can just feel some of the inflammation and you just feel that stuff and you don't necessarily feel as good. So, I mean, how, what, what differences have you made there? Like diet wise that have, do you feel has, has made a difference? I mean, I, I became a nutritionist and so I'm, a, I'm quite biased with this because not only have I seen differences in 
huge differences for myself, but I saw it in hundreds of clients. Um, I worked with sports um, athletes as well as, as people with brain injuries or um, neurological conditions. And so that was, I mean, the power of nutrition is pretty wild. I always kind of break down my holistic view of being into three major categories, healthy thinking, um, being the, the first uh, most important one, um, mm -hmm. but balancing it with healthy eating and healthy moving. Okay. Healthy thinking, healthy eating and healthy moving. So as that goes with, with the kind of break those down for me, let's talk a little bit about healthy thinking. I mean, I guess we kind of touched on that a little bit with the positive and the, and the change there. So healthy, let's go with, let's go with healthy moving. Okay. Yeah. With healthy moving, I mean, for, for someone who got a neur neurological condition, like basically my nervous system was shot. I was a really good sprinter before I was sick. And then all of a sudden I, I lost my sprinting ability and training um, like a sprint athlete is really taxing on the nervous system and it took me so long to recover that it made more sense for me to move toward the more middle distance um, training program. So I would modify my exercise and I was also very in tune like if I had a symptom um, like a little bit of numbness feeling in my leg I had to take that really seriously and slow down and so I, I became an expert at like listening to my body and staying in tune. Um, but post-sport, um, making sure that I just move every day. Like I, I kind of joke that I'm like a total civilian now. Like I go to camp classes in the regular gym and spin classes. And I love that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I balance that all out with activities in the mountains. And honestly, I don't judge myself if my exercise of the day is a 20-minute YouTube yoga. As long as I move and do some kind of activity every single day, mm -hmm. um, I, I feel so much better. And, and quite frankly, I, I feel like my whole day is thrown off and I'm really missing something if I don't move and right. some exercise. I'm like a Labrador retriever who needs to like go out for a run. And if I don't, <laughs> I'm going to be whiny and annoying. Gotcha. That's funny. Yeah, no, I mean, and well, Calgary's a good spot for that too, because I mean, you have that outdoor and I feel like most of the people there are pretty fairly active and you can go to the mountains or you have places to go and do spin classes and, and stuff like that. So how much was that like activity affected for you by COVID? I mean, were you doing constant just yoga classes in your house or going for walks down the street? I mean, what was kind of the, the effective effectiveness you had to deal with? Yeah, well, I picked up a lot of cross-country skiing. Oh, um, nice. So that's been my like winter activity just because I love downhill skiing. I love uh, snowboarding, but mm -hmm. it's a bigger commitment for time, money, um, you know, getting out to the mountains, um, having a good vehicle with good winter tires in like the, the crappy days. But mm -hmm. um, so I, I picked up, I added cross-country skiing to my list of winter hobbies, which was really fun. And and then a lot of YouTube. A lot um, of YouTube. I so wish I had a Peloton or one of those bikes for at home, but I, I live in a pretty small place and have a, a tenant in the basement. So I wanted to be respectful of, of um, the noise and stuff. So yeah, a lot of YouTube. Very thankful for that. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. So, so let's touch on the, the last one there with the healthy thinking, healthy moving and healthy, healthy eating. So for you, Kind of personally, as you touched on, you know, you, you made some changes and you actually became a, a nutritionist, which is extremely impressive. I mean, I think uh, being able to, to know that food and as you said, you became a little bit better with kind of knowing your body. 
So, I mean, that's an interesting thing I feel like to be able to play with because food absolutely affects you, your body. And it's, in, it's interesting to, to see, cause I'll do a lot of fasting. So it's always interesting. Like I've done like seven day fasts and, and stuff like that. Um, and that is always super interesting when you come off of like a seven day fast and like the first thing that you eat, like you totally know what, how it's going to affect your system and like what's going to happen there. So it's, so yeah, I'm just kind of curious for you. What are, what are some of those healthy eating, uh, habits? So I, I've gone to all of the extremes with diets. Like I've tried keto and I've tried um, some like pretty intense brain health protocols where you're eating lots of like organ meats and sea vegetables and cruciferous vegetables. Like you basically your whole life is washing containers and prepping food. And so I've gone to all of the extremes, but really now it's about like you know, swinging the pendulum and then finding that middle ground that is really, um, it really fits your, not only your palate, but your wallet and your lifestyle and all of those things. And so if I was to go into relapse, and for those who don't know much about MS, your immune system attacks your nervous system. It's kind of, um, it's supposedly um, out of nowhere, like we don't know why it happens and it's very unpredictable. I would argue that we actually do have a lot of signs that tell us like, okay, you need to slow down or else you're probably gonna go into relapse, but that's out for, um, for debate still. Mm -hmm. If I were to go into relapse again, I would probably tighten up and swing the pendulum for a shorter period of time. But then now I've been drug-free, relapse-free for over 11 years now. And I have found a, a great balance. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't drink excessively and eat a ton of sugar, but I don't eliminate that stuff completely. Like I, you know, I love going to the, you know, for an apres, um beer after a ski day or after riding my bike, things like that. I mean, it's, it's very normal, but I'm definitely conscious about getting lots of what you would typically hear, which is lots of vegetables from all the different types of um, vegetable groups. Um, I balance my protein intake between both animal and vegetable uh, mm. sources and, and then have a high fiber diet, drink a ton of water. My water is consumed between my meals, my, my digestion, and mm. I could probably go on and on about like the superfoods and the mush mushroom um, powders that I put in my coffee and all that kind of stuff. But I'm basically a gay pig and I love experimenting mm -hmm. um, with all the different things that you can do with food to make it interesting and fun and and yeah I mean it's one of those things I mean it's 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 so important because it's always around us we're always consuming it so it might as well be something good that you're you're kind of putting into your body now what was the process yeah. so I mean 11 years 11 years relapse free and everything else and off drugs. so what was that process like and was that kind of a scary step for you to take or was it just more like tinkering okay i'm going off the drugs like we'll see how this kind of goes i mean what was that process like for you yeah so like i said i was on on a daily drug injection for five years and then i climbed my way back to an elite level in sports so i was diagnosed in 2005 and made it to the olympic trials in 2009 and the pre-olympic season i lost vision in my left eye which was another relapse and when I got more tests done, I was told that my disease was progressing and it looked like I had um, a, a more progressive, uh, aggressive form of MS. There's three types and it looked like I was getting one of the worst, uh, which means that basically you go into relapse and you're not able to recover from it and you slowly um, debilitate um, and you're in a wheelchair and it kind of looks like a more drawn out ALS type disease. And so they 
suspected that that was what I was developing after I lost vision in my left eye in 2009. They recommended a more aggressive drug treatment plan, started listing the side effects, which sounded worse than the disease itself, to be honest. <laughs> and up until that point, I mean, I was told I'd never speed skate again, and I had just qualified for the trials for the 2010 Olympics. So I'm like, there's got to be, you know, something else that I'm doing here that's that's good. And if you're telling me the drugs aren't working, it must be this other stuff that got me into an elite level in sport. Mm -hmm. So as much as all my loved ones were freaked out that I made the decision to go off all of my drugs to treat my disease more, nat more naturally and holistically instead, because if I did both, I would never know which one was working. Yeah. And I felt like I had nothing to lose at that point with that kind of a, a depressing prognosis. So I went off my drugs, was a bit more aggressive with the healthy eating, thinking, moving protocol. Uh, I even flew to India for a controversial test to figure out some more things that were going on. And um, eight months later, I came just a few spots off the Canadian Olympic team. And 11 years later is now, and I haven't had a single relapse. I've only had uh, minor symptoms that I've been able to manage. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll also preface it by saying, like, I understand I'm one anecdotal case of an unpredictable disease. So I don't think I have all of the answers, but um, what I do understand is that there are some gaps in the, in the science that we really need to fill, which is what um, motivated me to start uh, the charity show. So, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect lead in. I mean, let's talk about that because you, you get done with sport, you kind of make that transition and that's always a, that's always a difficult step, right? When it's something you've been chasing since you're nine, 10 years old, and this is kind of the goal, this is the dream. And then there is that period of like, okay, now I'm done with athletics. You know, we were joking before we came on, like, oh yeah, I retired at 26 or whatever else, you know, it's always funny to say like that, like, oh yeah, I'm done. Like, so for you, did you have a little bit of, of time when you were done? Like, oh, I don't kind of, what is the next step? I mean, you kind of had something that you knew you were fighting and you kind of had to deal with. I mean, was that kind of the, the main thing you were thinking about? Like, all right, let's attack this. Let's figure this out. And then it leads right into, I want this, I want to start this foundation to get more awareness and, and to find out what we need to do moving forward. Yeah. So, you know what? I was so proud of myself for, I, I raced a, a personal best time in the Olympic trials. Um, I had overcome so much so just getting to race at the Olympic trials and be at that elite level after everything I'd gone through. I was so proud and excited of everything I was able to do with this. Um, and then of course you're faced with that really tough um, question for amateur athletes, which is, do I go another four years mm -hmm. and can I do this? Is it smart for me to do this? And so I definitely considered it, but it was a conversation with my sports psych actually, who was like, okay, let's go back to your personal values, which was like a, you know, an annual exercise that you did with your sports psych. And he's like, I want you to write a list. Well, actually I'm going to back up a sec. So mm -hmm. I, I had the choice to either um, go another four years with, with speed skating, or I had this, new dream that was developing and, and was quickly growing bigger than the Olympics themselves, which was to start this charity called the Branch Out Neurological Foundation to fill all those gaps that I noticed as a patient navigating through the, the health system. And so I wrote, he had me write down, you know, the pros and cons, like all of the reasons why you would do one or the, over the other. I proudly came back to him with uh, two long lists that are around equal in length. 
And I wanted to kind of, I was proud because I was like, see, this is a really hard decision. There's just as many reasons to stay in sport as there is to parody. And then he brought out my personal values and he's like, okay, now I want you to take those lists back with your values. Mm -hmm. And I want you to cross off anything that doesn't align with your values. And uh, there was one, it was like egoless and authentic. Like that was one of my personal values. And then I would look at the list of like staying in sport and it was, I would be the first person with MS to make the Olympics. And it was all this like very ego driven um, <laughs> want to stay in sport and so i long story short had to cross off a lot of things for staying in sport and i came back to him and i was like wow this is you just made this a really easy decision for me because you know playing life according to your personal values is you know gives you a lot of confidence in your decision making and so i was like i guess i'm going to pursue this big dream of starting a charity and so that was really um my decision and so as much as it's hard for any elite athlete um, or professional athlete to retire out of sport and reintegrate into society mm -hmm. it's a it's a heck of a lot easier when you have an even bigger goal ahead of you that you can you can drive towards using the same skills that you then transfer to this new goal yeah no i mean that's uh, that's that's super cool that you had that uh there and kind of this so so what was it going, you know, you kind of touched on a little bit, but going through and seeing the gaps kind of in the, in the medical system. And, and is that kind of, when did that idea kind of first like spur on of like, Hmm, well, I, th I think we should, some, something should be here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, like I said, it's just like, I put the rose colored glasses on and I try to put a positive spin on it, but truthfully I was just frustrated. Mm -hmm. I was really frustrated that you know, everything that I was doing that was kind of off the beaten path, but was working so well for me. Mm -hmm. I was frustrated that no one wanted to listen to me in the conventional healthcare system. My neurologist looked at me like I had five heads when I started talking about B vitamins, even though that's like your nervous system supporting vitamins. I'm like, why when I, you know, study all this in nutrition, I see all of this benefit in all my patients. Why doesn't the conventional doctors you know, even seem to want to care about any of this. Mm -hmm. So I was frustrated and I, and rather than, you know, just staying mad, I was like, I'm going to try and, and, you know, fix some of this stuff myself. And, and I remember I had a really important meeting with my neurologist. Mm -hmm. I was doing really well. And she was asking me all of the things that I do. And of course, um, I'm going off on all of the healthy thinking, healthy eating, my diet, and I'm excited to tell her everything. And then I just like took a breath, like thinking that she's evil because she she doesn't she doesn't perceive of this natural stuff. And I'm like she doesn't care about me. It's evil. The healthcare system doesn't work. And then I just took a breath. And asked her. I was like, Do you wish that you know you see me succeeding despite a terrible prognosis? Do you wish that you know you would be able to have the research to back up? Some of the stuff that I'm doing so that you could recommend it to your other patients who are suffering and need more help. And she turns around and for the first time, not doctor and patient, we were human and human. Mm -hmm. And she goes every single day. And I was like, okay, she's not evil. It, the system is just not set up to um, fund this kind of research because there's no um, way to, to profit off of it. So, um, that's when I realized I needed to create a charitable model and start funding the, this high quality research and mm -hmm. fill those gaps myself. And, and that was really the deciding moment. So, I mean, 
it sounds awesome on the on the small end and the idea end, but then putting that into action certainly seems like a daunting uphill task when you look at you know dealing with the healthcare system and all of that. I mean, that seems like that's a that's a daunting challenge. Yeah. So I, I joke that I'm at this point where I'm like, I want to change the face of neuroscience. <laughs> and it's like, I probably didn't even know what neuroscience was before my diagnosis. And um, I had all of these grand plans and be this national charity and stuff. And the only problem is my background is skating in circles for 20 years. And so <laughs> I, I learned the valuable lesson of playing your strengths. And for me, it was, I loved organizing group rides and group activities like training programs and stuff. And I was known in the sporting world in Calgary. You ask anyone around my age um, in the winter sport world, I can throw a kick-ass party. And <laughs> I was like, you know what? My strengths, I'm going to throw a kick-ass fundraising party that involves a bike tour. And um, in order to fill in all those million other gaps of starting a, a national neuroscience charity, um, I'm going to have to start outsourcing and finding, you know, sharing my vision wide and see if there's anyone else who wants to kind of join join in. And, and so, of course knowing looking back now it's like i asked a lot of people if they wanted to work a ton for free and i the, the overwhelming response was yes exclamation mark and um and so i i collected many what i call unlike minds uh, people from all different areas which is what it took to take this very big idea and make it a reality so how long was that process to really get it up off the ground? I mean, it's it's awesome to hear that you had so much support there and so many, I feel like it makes it even better that you had people in unlikely areas, right? That are like, okay, you know, like it, it, I feel like it just makes the whole of the of the foundation that much better when you get those different minds and it's not all the, the same single track, like, okay, we're all in the same thought process to kind of get those different areas and throw out ideas that maybe you'd never you know, would have come across your mind before. Oh, it's, that's exactly like now I seek unlike minds. Like I try to find people who think differently, have different backgrounds than me because they bring like a whole new create creative perspective to all these problems and ideas going forward. And I, I carry that onto my, my now career with thin air labs too. And it's, you know, it's, it's actually taken off. And a lot of people um, and all my colleagues, we all talk about unlike minds. Like it's like a very normal saying, which is really fun. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it definitely took an army and when, I think it also speaks to the fact that you throw a, a vision out there of a world free from neurological disorders and you realize there's not one type of person who wants that to be a reality. Like it was very easy to attract people because they all have a personal story and are all affected in their different ways and want to achieve you know, optimal brain health for their loved ones or their themselves. Mm -hmm. So the, when did that foundation start? When was the official like launch date of that? And how long did that take? Because you, you take some time to figure out like, okay, I know that I'm not going another four years. I'm going to be done. I'm going to start this foundation. How long was that process until the foundations up and off the ground? Yeah. So kudos to my co-founder Graham Daw because he is like your he's like that guy who write, reads the fine print in the small parts of uh, big documents right and the iTunes acceptance for the new update he's really <laughs> so we had really complementary skill sets 
his dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's, so he was equally as motivated to um, to start this charity with me. And so together, um, we were able to form a board and some other co-founders, and we were official, official um, near the end of November 2010. Okay, very cool. Awesome. And it's, I mean, it's grown so much what you've done. You've had over 90 projects, right? Yeah, over hey. 90 research projects and programs in eight universities across the country, raising over $3 million. I mean, that is fantastic. I mean, those projects and what have those, what have those projects kind of brought to light and have, how much have they kind of helped move the ball forward when it comes to those neurological disorders and diseases? Yeah. So if we had seven hours, I would tell you. <laughs> project because there's so many cool ones so i'm going to talk about some of the just like first to mind mm -hmm. one is really cool because we focus on non-pharmaceutical non-pharmaceutical but also tech so a good example is um there are kids who have no independence um, with their living so uh, for example if they can't move their arm and thirsty every time they want to take a sip of water they need to ask for help so one of the projects we funded at the university of calgary was what if we could train the brain to move a robotic arm to pick up that glass of water um, um, on its own so they developed a video game that would help kids train their brains, exercise them, no different than a muscle, so that they can use their arm to do simple tasks to regain their self, um, their, their in independence. And so that was one real cool project. We did another one that used um, music therapy for Parkinson's, where uh, if a Parkinson's patient would have a freezing effect, meaning they would walk and then all of a sudden freeze, mm -hmm. and it's kind of unknown phenomenon with the disease. But if they're listening to music, they can um, consistently walk. And there's a particular mm. algorithm that chooses one song for each Parkinson's patient that motivates the brain more than any other song. Really? So we developed this app. I know it makes you wonder what your song is. So they developed this app and the Parkinson's patient wears something on their knee and the minute that they start to slow or maybe are, are going to freeze, mm -hmm. this music, um, sorry, noise starts to play. Mm -hmm. And it, it basically triggers them to be like, nope, you got to keep walking, keep walking. And then once they have like three strides that are kind of normal, then this one song starts playing and it keeps them walking consistently until that, uh, until you take your earphones out and you're not listening to it. So you train using that song for up to a year. And then after about a year, they're noticing that a whole new neural pathway has been built um, so that you don't even need the music Wow. to be able to walk consistently without freezing, meaning you can go into the public, you can walk outside for the first time in some, for some of them many years. Wow, um, that is, those, those are, those are super, super cool. I mean, that is really incredible. The, the research and the, and the technology and the stuff that, that, that they're coming out with. And I mean, it is crazy because I mean, it always used to be that school of thought that like you couldn't create new, you know, neuro brain pathways after like the age of like 30 or something right you'd have everything would be pretty set and old school thinking like you couldn't regrow muscle or new tissue or you know new bones or all the and it, it's crazy to see with all the new research and stuff that's coming out about all the the capabilities i mean what, what are a couple others i'm so intrigued now yeah so 
Um, one recent one was at University of Toronto, and mm -hmm. it looked at you. You again play kind of like a game, and mm -hmm. it's like a spatial navigation game. Okay. And they've developed it specifically so that it trains the muscle in your brain that um, helps with memory. And a lot of MS patients struggle with their their hippocampus area where that controls your memory. So mm -hmm. tr basically, training that part of your brain muscle um, helps you improve your memory. Um, short and long term. So that's one of the projects. And then another one is looking at uh, the ketogenics, the ketogenic diet's ability to stop seizures in people with really severe epilepsy. Wow. That's awesome. They're great. And you know, one thing it's awesome just to see as we're, you're going through and describing all this stuff, just the, the amount of passion that comes through in your voice and your expressions when you're talking about these projects. I mean, it's so cool to hear about them because they're awesome. They really are. And it's so insane to see the new technologies, but it's also really cool to see uh, just your passion about it because it really comes through like glowingly, uh, just just how much you really care and, and how exciting uh, it is. So how many projects, do, is there like a set goal of how many you try to do in a year? Or is it just as the funding comes? Like what is that kind of process like when it comes to that? Yeah, I mean, charities have definitely struggled over the last year through COVID, like so many businesses sure. and people. Mm -hmm. um, so we um, thankfully had some reserves and philanthropy over the last year. So we've been able to um, keep up with a lot of our, our funding. But on mm -hmm. average, we're funding about 10 to 15 new research um, projects or programs in various universities across the country. That's awesome. And, and also, we have a very strict protocol for um, for creating a standard for scientific validity because when you're you're putting it out there that you are funding non-pharmaceutical, there's the stigma attached to that. So often it, the stigma is that it's not very scientifically valid or credible. And mm -hmm. so we have to ensure that we have this strong scientific review panel to make sure that only the top quality neuroscience applications get through kind of our filter for funding. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, we have way, and fortunately, we have way more applications that pass through that filter. And every year, it almost feels like you're picking your favorite children. Um, <laughs> you want to fund them all, but there's there's limits with your your uh, ability to do that because of fundraising. So the more funds that we can raise, um, the more amazing research projects that we can support. And there's more than enough out there um, and great ideas that are just waiting for a, com a, a charity like Branch Out that's willing to find a little outside of the box. Mm -hmm. So how big is that panel that kind of helps you pick and choose which, you know, which projects are going to make it through and, and which ones aren't? Is that, and as you said, that's got to be a difficult process when there's so many cool different ideas or projects that are put on the table. Well, there's, there's another skill I totally outsource. So I find <laughs> Um, neuroscientists. My first speed skating coach ever actually just happens to have a PhD in neuroscience. So he helped me develop the whole program from start. Um, but now it's taken off in neuros to like neuroscientist or research director uh, lead it. Um, we have, it ranges between eight to 20 um, various neuroscientists, doctors, naturopaths who are willing to give up their time and volunteer to go through these applications. And yeah, I'm forever grateful to all of them. And they, they do that probably about three times a year for undergrad, master's, PhD uh, programs. Very cool. 
That's awesome. Well, the show really looks forward to, uh, to donating to, the, to your charity. And I really appreciate you taking the time and coming on and getting to talk about your, your incredible journey. And um, I hopefully look forward to having you on again soon so we can talk, uh, talk a little bit more. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm so I'm so grateful to have this opportunity, and um, hopefully on the next one I can talk about my new um, my new career, which is I'm I'm still on the branch out board, but now really focused on making sure that the research gets out of the lab and we can build businesses out of them, so it reaches the patients or the end users. And so now I'm leading the whole health sector at Thinner Labs to do just that and build and support startups and entrepreneurs to get that research all the way to the finish line. That's yeah. I look forward to to having you on again, so we can talk about some of that. And yeah, it should be great. Well, thank you very much for for taking the time, and uh, thanks everybody for listening in. Thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs> Appreciate it. Hey everybody! I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. And if you're watching or listening on YouTube, please make sure you hit that bell button so you get notified every time a new episode drops. Thanks.